Welcome to Helix Talk, an educational podcast for healthcare students and providers covering real-life clinical pearls, professional pharmacy topics, and drug therapy discussions. This podcast is provided by pharmacists and faculty members at Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Helix Talk, episode 62. I'm your co-host, Dr. King. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel. Today's title is called Devices, Not Drugs, Stroke Risk Reduction in Atrial Fibrillation. So we'll be talking about um, using devices as opposed to anticoagulants to prevent strokes in patients with AFib. And I think the best way to kind of kick off this episode is to introduce you to a patient case. The patient that we're talking about today is Frank. So Frank is a fictional 75-year-old male who presented to his primary care office, we'll say Dr. Patel's office, with palpitations and anxiety. He's been feeling it for weeks, so this is not an acute onset AFib. It's either unknown duration or kind of a chronic AFib. His wife finally convinced him to come to uh, his primary care office visit. And he has a past medical history that's relevant for active alcohol abuse cirrhosis, thrombocytopenia from his cirrhosis, frequent falls from his alcohol abuse, diabetes, and hypertension. After a a thorough workup of a a lot of different things, it's discovered that he does in fact have AFib, and that is what's causing his palpitations and anxiety problems. So essentially, there's two problems here to worry about with atrial fibrillation. The first one is going to be about heart rate or rhythm management. So the ventricular heart rate can be fast, and when when that happens, patients can feel these palpitations in their chest that kind of pounding out of my chest, it can really make them feel uncomfortable. Uh, usual strategies for that, one of them is going to be rate control, slowing down the, the, heart, the heart rate with either a beta blocker or a, a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. Or the other option is you can do ry- a rhythm control with a different class of antirhythmic medications, or you can also do an elective cardioversion too. Now, this isn't necessarily something that's going to be the focus of today's podcast. That's a whole other topic on its own, but something we need to consider. What we're focusing on today, however, is the stroke risk and how we mitigate that stroke risk associated with the atrial fibrillation. So we know that with the residual blood, there could be a clot that can form in the left atria, which can then travel up to the brain, causing an ischemic stroke. And so the risk assessment for the development of stroke when somebody has a fib is based on the chads vasque score. Um, that determines whether we need to place patient on just an antiplatelet therapy versus an anti coagulant therapy, or we need to do nothing. And so if we go back to our our patient, Frank, he does have a high risk of stroke, and you can see that in his CHADS2 VAS score. So he gets a point for being hypertensive. He actually gets two points for his age being at or above 75 years old, and he also gets a point for being a diabetic. So he gets four total points. If you plug that into the publication for CHADS2 VAS, every year he has a risk of about 5% risk of stroke, uh, because of those risk factors. And normally, if you have a chest 2 vast stroke risk of at least two points or more, you would potentially be indicated for full anticoagulation with either warfarin or a DOAC, or in rare cases, something like uh, low molecular weight heparin. But at the same time, though, we also have to look at the um, the, the benefit of the medication, but is also the risk of adverse outcomes. So we can look at it using the HASBLED, an assessment for bleeding risk, which takes another uh, number of different factors into play. And so depending upon these other comorbidities that someone may have, he has at the very least a HASBLED score of three points. Again, if we give one point for the current ethanol abuse, one point for the age greater than 65, and one point also for liver dysfunctions uh, due to the cirrhosis. And so 
Again, same thing, we actually have a major bleeding risk here that's 5% a year. So we have a CVA risk of 5%, major bleeding risk of 5%. So what do we do? And, you know, not to dilute the, the importance of this case, Mr. Frank over here. However, you know, we, we do see these kind of patients in the clinic too. I have a patient currently that we are managing her anticoagulation. And every other week she's in the ER because she has epistaxis episodes occurring. And she manages uh, somehow at home, but then they go out of control and she has to come up at the, the hospital. Um, it occurred to a point where she actually stopped taking warfarin because it was just, she was fed up with coming to the ER so many times and she ended up having a stroke. Wow. So we had to restart her anticoagulation and this time we had to really educate the family and say, we need to have her on some sort of anticoagulation. So if we're really trying to manage such patients, you know, their bleeding risk is high or they're every other week in the ER with a nosebleed, um, a device might be a better option. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. You know, in, in thinking about risks and benefits and things like that, I think we have to kind of go back to kind of the pathophysiology of why you're at risk for a stroke in the first place with AFib. Um, and it really comes down to this one structure in your left atria called the left atrial appendage. And everyone has one, an LAA that we'll call it. And this is implicating about 90% of clots that form in patients who have AFib. So when you have a clot that forms, 90% of the time that clot is forming in this LAA, this appendage off your left atria. So this is really where the problem happens. And of course, if that clot does form and it embolizes where it travels, it goes from the appendage to your left atrium, to your left ventricle, and then out into your systemic circulation where it's ripe to form uh, an arterial clot somewhere in your body. And, you know, statistically, your brain gets about a quarter of your blood flow. But when you do have these emboli that form, for whatever reason, 90% of the time, those emboli go up to the brain as opposed to other areas of your body. So if you ever read a package insert for any of the new DOACs, for example, for AFib, their primary endpoint wasn't stroke, ischemic stroke, or CVA. Their primary endpoint was a composite of ischemic stroke or, or CVA or having what they call the systemic embolization, uh, which just meant that a blood clot formed in your arm or your leg or your GI tract and kind of killed off some of the tissue. It's a really serious complication, but it also is very rare that this happens. So normally what we would do is we use an antiplatelet for, uh, for low risk or anticoagulant if somebody was at high risk of, of clots. We use it to prevent the uh, LAA clot formation in AFib. But again, to the, the cases that our case, for example, Dr. Patel pointed out, not all patients are good candidates. I know um, in our mental health clinic, for example, we have a number of individuals, alcohol abuse can be a concern, which again leads to fall risk or just in general others that are on a fall risk too. So what do we do in these situations where we need to treat you, but we're a little bit concerned about the risk of the medications? So a new strategy, again, would be to use one of these uh, LAA occlusion devices instead of an anticoagulant. So go the medication-free route to reduce the risk of stroke and systemic embolism while avoiding some of these uh, systemic effects of thinning the blood. So, you know, there's a bunch of different LAA or left atrial appendage occlusion devices that are out there. Right now in the U.S., there's only one that is FDA approved where you um, only do what's called the endovascular approach, means that they're not poking any holes in your chest or anything like that. Um, and this particular device is called a Watchman device. And what it means is that they're going to uh, take you to the cath lab, just like you would go to the cath lab for a stent if you have a heart attack or something like that. They're going to uh, cannulate your femoral vein. They're going to feed up um, this cannula all the way to your heart. And they start on the right side of your heart because that's where the veins dump out is to the right side of your heart. What they actually do is they literally poke a hole from the right side of your heart to the left side of your heart. 
um, and this is called a transeptal puncture. And what happens is they end up on the left side of your heart, which is in the left atria. And that's exactly where they want to be because that's where the left atrial appendage is. So what they do is once they're in the left atria, they deploy this device, in this case called the Watchman device. And basically it implanted into the left atrial appendage where blood can't really uh, flow that well into where the LIA is being occluded. And actually over a, a period of about one to two months, the body will form epithelial tissue over where that device is. And it ends up that for the vast majority of patients, they won't get any blood flow and the heart will kind of form tissue around it where that appendage is essentially gone. You still have the device there, but the tissue has kind of grown over it. And the whole point here is that we're preventing blood from getting to the appendage to form a clot to potentially increase your risk of embolic stroke. That process just sounds very fascinating, Dr. Kane. So there's uh, another thing is that other other devices that are more invasive do exist, but they either aren't FDA approved yet, or again, they're more problematic because of that more invasive nature. And then if you really want to get crazy, if you're having open heart surgery, they can actually do a surgical ligation or a surgical amputation, where um, if they already have you opened up because they're going to do a, an open heart surgery for a cabbage, uh, which is uh, coronary artery bypass graft, or if they're going to do a, a valve repair or valve replacement, because they're already there, it's actually very common practice if you already have AFib that they'll just snip off or ligate your left atrial appendage because it's just right there and not a big deal. Interestingly enough, there's actually almost no data to support this practice. It probably isn't harmful, but you'd expect it would have some data to support you know, doing this thing while you're already in the chest. But as it turns out, we have very weak retrospective data suggesting that it does reduce your risk of stroke, but we just don't have a lot of prospective data to really support the practice. So now that we know that um, the only device that is FDA approved and currently in use is Watchman device, let's take a look at some of the data pertaining to the Watchman device. Currently, we do know that there are about two studies out there, um, Protect AF and the Prevail study. And both of these studies were conducted using the Watchman device versus the standard of care, which we know as Warfarin, maintaining the INR level between two and three, which is usually the INR level for the treatment of atrial fibrillation. So in both, the Watchman device was implanted and then uh, Warfarin plus aspirin was used for the first 45 days. Then it was aspirin plus Plavix for six months and then that was aspirin alone indefinitely thereafter. One thing to make sure that both of the studies used uh, patients who had CHATS 2 score of one or more. And then also in both studies, the primary efficacy endpoint was embolic stroke, systemic embolism, so not really a stroke, but embolism elsewhere in the body, or cardiovascular death. And, you know, the first study, Protect AF, this was the first one that came out in 2009. This is what really put Watchmen on the, on the map. And so they had 463 patients that got the Watchmen device, and then 244 got Warfarin as a control. So it was a two-to-one ratio. And really the goal here was to prove non-inferiority in terms of efficacy, that efficacy endpoint, indicating that the stroke risk and the embolism risk and the cardiovascular death risk was equivalent between getting warfarin or getting this device where longer term, you don't have to be on warfarin at all. And what they found was non-inferiority confirmed to warfarin. And it was three events per 100 patient years for Watchman versus 4.9 per 100 patient year events with warfarin. And uh, the relative risk was 0.62 in favor of Watchman, but it did cross a confidence interval of one, meaning that it wasn't better, but it did meet the non-inferiority margin that they set out. 
So what's interesting is we talked initially that the goal of doing something like this was to potentially avoid some of the negative side effects of the medication. Well, the problem was here is the Watchman device actually was found to be worse in terms of some other safety outcomes that they maybe weren't considering. So composite safety endpoint was major bleeding, pericardial effusion, procedure-related cerebrovascular accidents, and device embolization. So what they found were 7.4 events per 100 patient years in Watchman versus 4.4 events for 100 patient years in the warfarin group, which ended up with a relative uh, risk of 1.69. And here it did not cross one. It's very close, but did not cross one. So therefore, it is statistically significant. And, you know, the, the main driver in terms of the adverse effect profile with the Watchman device was pericardial effusion. What that means is that blood collected around the heart in the pericardial space, probably because of that transeptal puncture and other procedure-related events that happened. In my opinion, at least, it's kind of hard to really compare apples to oranges because what you're doing is you're saying the acute safety profile is worse with Watchmen, which is what you'd expect, that you're going to have some procedure-related complications. But what it doesn't really adequately capture is things like hemorrhagic stroke or other major bleeding events that happen six months afterwards if the watchman was successful. So it's a great safety endpoint, but we have to remember that the procedure itself does have risks, and that's really what that safety endpoint captures. And to that end, Dr. Kane, it actually looks like watchman actually did have fewer hemorrhagic strokes, 0.2% versus 2.5%. So again, potentially, you know, there may be some early complications, but once you get out past that, there may be some long-term benefits. And this study was done in 2009. So if you're considering this uh, procedure, that was kind of a new. So in the latter studies that they used Watchman device, uh, the rate of pericardial effusion has decreased. And that probably shows the improvement in the surgical procedure and the, the methodology of the procedure in itself. Absolutely. And this is very common that we'll see as cardiologists or interventional radiologists or even surgeons become more familiar with something, that familiarity helps them have better outcomes for their patients. So certainly, if you're going to get a Watchman device, you want someone who's put in a bunch of Watchman devices for you to have optimal outcomes. The second study, as we mentioned, was the PREVAIL study. There was a little bit more recent study published in 2014. And again, there was a non-inferiority marker, and Watchman device was uh, actually unable to show that non-inferiority for the efficacy. Here, the relative risk um, was 1.07, and it did cross the confidence interval 1. In that margin, the confidence interval was 0.57 to 1.89. And for it to show non-inferiority, that top number, the 1.89, had to be below 1.75. So they didn't meet their criteria. It's unclear if they had more people in the study, would they have been more adequately powered to narrow that confidence margin down a little bit to show non-inferiority. But this is the second best study that we have. And in this case, it did not demonstrate non-inferiority, but the confidence interval was quite wide. And the rates of the events we talked about for the primary efficacy outcome were almost identical um, over the 18-month study period. They also looked at safety endpoints, um, but unlike with the PROTECT AF study, um, they didn't do an active comparator for safety, and that was one of the weaknesses of the trial. So instead, they used a historical safety comparator, and um, in my opinion, that really weakens the ability to look at the safety profile. But what they did show and Dr. Patel, you alluded to it earlier. So the overall composite safety event rate was 2.2%, which was anything from pericardial effusion to major bleeding, things like that. And even if you just look at the pericardial effusions, which was the, the biggest problem in the uh, PROTECT-AF study, 
In Protect AF, which again was five years earlier, they had a, a rate of about 5% of pericardial effusion, whereas here in Prevail, it was you know roughly 2% or less in terms of these uh, procedure-related complications and other safety endpoints. So again, as clinicians have more familiarity with it, they probably do get better and have fewer complications from the procedure. So it kind of uh, takes us back to that, kind of for Frank looking at him again. So for Frank to be a candidate for Washington, we'd have to have a, a couple different things in place. One, they'd have to have a no current left atrial appendage clot. So something we'd have to go ahead and look for and assess an echo uh, need for if they have a need for anti dual antiplatelet therapy plus anticholinergic so triple therapy. That'd be something else to be, uh, be a candidate. If they had higher risk of bleeding, so low platelet, recurrent GI bleed, prior intracerebral hemorrhage, poor anticholinergic compliance, frequent falls. Any of these things would make somebody a candidate. And then, as we already established, that you know our patient Frank over here has high risk of falls, cirrhosis. He has high risk of bleeding as well. But at the same time, he's at high risk of having an embolic stroke as well. So we're kind of playing with a seesaw and trying to find a best balance for him. And admittedly, we don't have a great deal of data for the Watchman device. But of the data we have, it does appear to offer some benefit in terms of stroke prevention somewhat comparable to what you'd get from warfarin as an example. So for Frank, potentially he could have his cake and eat it too in the sense that he may be able to have stroke risk prevention using Watchman without having long-term, we're talking months down the road, bleeding risk um, that clearly he's at a very high risk for. Yeah, and the, the device will be used by itself. So looking at the Protect AF trial study design, we probably would be giving him the Watchman device if he is a good candidate for that. But then he also will be uh, on Warfarin plus aspirin for 45 days, and then aspirin plus Plavix for six months, and then aspirin there after alone. And not to negate the bleeding uh, risk of the antiplatelets over here too. So we're not using Warfarin, but at the same time, we're kind of using one sort of antiplatelet, which is aspirin in this case. So the risk of bleeding is still high and patient education should still ensue. And we should admit that there is a small amount of data where you don't use warfarin in those extremely high-risk patients who do get a Watchman device, but that's not how it was studied in Protect AF and Prevail. And for that reason, you're really in uncharted waters if you choose to go the Watchman route, but they have some absolute contraindication to warfarin. So if they're at, let's say they had a head bleed two weeks ago, and you're very worried about their risk of stroke, uh, embolic stroke, could you do a Watchman? Sure, but it's not going to be supported by the literature because you wouldn't be able to give that patient warfarin because of their recent head bleed, for example. And you would be basically in a gray area in terms of um, what is their risk of procedure-related complication and bleeding risk and stuff like that. So if we kind of summarize where we're at, uh, it sounds like Frank might be a candidate. If we go back to some of the key points we talked about, the first is going to be Anyone with AFib is going to be at a, an increased risk of stroke, and we can actually use the CHADS2-VASC scoring system to figure out how bad their stroke risk is. And the reason that those that they're at a stroke risk is because they have uh, clots that form in the left atrial appendage. Those clots travel to the brain, and that occludes blood flow, causing an embolic stroke. So for patients who are not deemed to be good candidates for anticoagulation, again, for some of the reasons we've already discussed, uh, high bleed risk, for example, Watchman device and other future devices that work similarly, their occlusion devices, may reduce the risk of stroke similarly to a full anticoagulation. So again, in patients with the CHADS 2 VAS score of 1 to 2 or more, uh, anticoagulation with warfarin or the DOAX is the primary method of reducing the, the risk of stroke, and this is based off of the CHEST guidelines. And then finally, you know, the Watchman device does have good data in terms of its efficacy versus warfarin. 
What we do know is that there is a risk of procedure-related complications, specifically blood that pools around the heart called the pericardial effusion. But we also know that the long-term risks of bleeding are dramatically reduced uh, with the Watchman device because you're not on warfarin anymore after you know a couple months versus if you don't get Watchman, you're always on these anticoagulants. And depending on your risk, a typical risk is about 2 to 3% per year of major hemorrhage for any full anticoagulant. So we always have to consider that as well. So with that, uh, that concludes episode 62. We absolutely love the five-star reviews in iTunes. We also love review comments that tell us what kinds of episodes you guys want to uh, hear, what topics you're interested in. Uh, we, we read every single one and always talk about it when we have our planning needs. So if you want a specific topic, either email us and our contact information is at helixtalk.com. You can find us on Twitter at helixtalk. Or you can leave those beautiful five-star reviews with comments to help us understand what you want to hear more about. With that, I'm Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel. And as always, study hard. If you enjoyed the show, please help us climb the iTunes rankings for medical podcasts by giving us a five-star review in the iTunes store. Search for Helix Talk and place your review there. To suggest an episode or contact us, we're online at helixtalk.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science.